listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from I Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts by Professor Richard Wiseman and Professor Chris French. It was first broadcast live on the 31st of October 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is a Halloween Skeptics in the Pub online special. Um, the title that we were given was I Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts, which is quite ironic because as a kid I was absolutely terrified of ghosts, but we won't go there. Now, before I introduce tonight's very special guest, I just want to say a few words about what skepticism is about and what Skeptics in the Pub is about. Skeptics basically are people who like to see evidence before making their mind up about a claim. Um, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. Skeptics in the Pub started in the last century. In 1999, Scott Campbell held the first meeting in London. And the format then was basically that uh, someone would be invited to come and give a talk. There'd be a Q&A and there'd be a kind of general social. And that's really the format as it has stayed um, the idea caught on. There were other branches that opened up across the UK and beyond. Um, and of course, up until quite recently, uh, lots of people would have been going out and seeing these events live, face to face, so to speak. Of course, the pandemic's put a stop to that. But fortunately, skeptics in the pub online mean that you will get your regular fix of, of skepticism. Um, so if this is your first time, then welcome. If this is not your first time, then welcome back. A couple of other things I want to mention before I introduce our special guest. Uh, I want to give a plug to the next talk in this series, which is on Thursday, the 5th of November. And that's the one and only Tim Harford from Radio 4's More or Less program. Uh, fantastic program if you want to kind of try and really understand all the baffling statistics that have been thrown around, particularly around COVID and so on. Uh, the title of Tim's talk is How to Make the World Add Up. 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. The other important thing to mention is that this event is a fundraiser for the charity, the Centre for Effective Altruism. Now, as I said before, sceptics are people who like to make decisions on the basis of the best available evidence, and this is just 100% in line with that charity's work. The charity, just to quote, the Centre for Effective Altruism uses evidence and careful analysis to find how to help others as much as possible. Their fund managers use the best evidence available to identify organizations and projects with the highest expected impact. All donations from tonight's event will be split among the four effective altruism funds, that's global health and development, animal welfare, long-term future, and effective altruism infrastructure. So please do give generously. Uh, you can go to the link which is at sitp.online forward slash charity. Okay. Um, so anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Richard, one of my favorite people. So ladies and gentlemen, I give you Professor Richard Wiseman. Hello, Richard. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you, Chris? Very well. Thank you, mate. I was I was trying to think the first time we met. I, I, I'm telling you how we go back a long, long way in skepticism. 
and as friends as well. Uh, the first joint talk we gave, I can remember we were heckled by Charles Darwin. That is how far, that's how far we go back. Yeah, it was a good uh, heckle. It was good. <laughs> it was very good, very good. Um, so, uh, yes, we're going to be talking about ghosts, ghosts this evening. I've, I've done many, many skeptics in the pub uh, over the years, but uh, this is the first virtual one. I've been talking about ghosts and how they don't exist. Um, so uh, that's, uh, I've never seen any evidence for a ghost at all. We should make that absolutely clear uh, as we start off that although it's Halloween, absolutely nothing uh, that I've ever seen would convince me that they, uh, they actually exist. Um, and all I would ask, you know, if they do exist is just, you know, send any kind of sign. That's, that's sort of basically uh, what I ask for. And I've never had anything over the years. I mean, I mean, there are people out there, as you know, Richard, who would say that because of your scepticism, you wouldn't notice the evidence even if it was right there where you were. What do they know? What, where, where is the proof of that? That's all I ask for. Any kind of proof that I'd miss an obvious sign. Anyway, anyway, here we are. Here we are. And congratulations right. uh, on, your, um, on your retirement. Yes, yes. 350 years at Goldsmiths and I have, I have retired. I am, I am an ex-professor. I'm, I'm an emeritus professor. So get me. Yeah. Very good. What's the green thing over your shoulder? Green thing over my shoulder. Oh, can you see the green thing over my shoulder? Oh, perhaps oh, you can't. About there? Yeah. Yeah. That is like, it's a big roll of uh, kind of stuff that you wrap. I mean, you know, my wife does pottery. Yes. So wrapping the pottery in if you're posting it somewhere. Oh, lovely. Carrying it around. So it's just like bubble wrap. Oh. Green wrap. Yeah. Lovely, lovely. I realised it was in shot. So. It might not be for most people, but another mystery solved. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're going to... Just what you do, isn't it, Richard? Exactly. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Eat your heart out, Scooby-Doo, I say. Right. Uh, no, being serious, though, folks. I mean, I mean scepticism these days, like sceptics in the pub, cover a very, very wide range. But both you and I kind of started with the stuff that was there in the early days, which was the paranormal. Yes. Uh, so it's only appropriate that tonight we stick to talking about ghosts. Okay. About ghosts. I, so I, I went, um, this is quite a long time ago now, I went back to my parents' house, this is obviously before lockdown, and I was looking at the books that I used to read when I was a kid, like seven or eight, uh, and uh, <laughs> it was hilarious. I was, I was sceptical even then. Um, I was seven years, I was a, a sceptic, age seven. I wasn't even certain I was seven. I thought I might be nine. And I'm going through this stuff, and it's like Loch Ness Monster, explained. UFOs, explained. Ghosts, the truth. Um, so, yeah, it goes back a, a long way. But I think you were a believer, though, weren't you, early on? Yeah, probably even, even by then, because I'm, I'm a lot older than you, Richard. Oh. But, um, but as a kid, I mean, when I was that age, I was absolutely terrified of ghosts. I was really? terrified of the dark, you know. It's kind of ironic that now, I mean, you know, these days I've done, like, TV programmes where I'm sitting in supposedly haunted locations mm -hmm. with a night camera, and it's about as exciting as watching paint dry, you know, but... I'm not saying I could never be scared in the appropriate circumstances. I'm sure I could. But compared to then, where just being on my own in the dark was enough to give me the heebie-jeebies, and it was thinking about ghosties and stuff. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of strange. I, I, think, I think the dark is very scary. We've done loads of fake seances. And, in fact, it's a bit sad. This is the first Halloween. We haven't done a, a live kind of seance. And, um, you know, just when you blow out that final candle, and everyone goes into absolute pitch darkness. And we're not used to that nowadays. You, know, you think you're in a dark room, but actually there's a crack in the window blind or something. 
But when you're in absolute darkness, it's a bit scary because you're so vulnerable. So it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that as a a, a young Chris French was there quaking in his little boots. Quaking in my little boots, I was. And I mean, I, I mean, I can even remember kind of, uh, you know, as a teenager, like the books, like uh, you know, the film The Exorcist scared me witless. Uh, oh. the, the Amityville Horror, you know, head oh. on the cover, it was true. So I believed it. I was a, God, I was naive. Yeah, I was looking compelled. Explained. That was the book I had. Yeah, <laughs> The Exorcist, the truth. Okay, let's let's talk about. I mean, okay, what are the conditions under which? people tend to have ghostly experiences well we, we should say um that, that first of all ghostly experiences aren't quite what you often think so uh although earlier on i'm being reliably informed there may have been a, a ghostly uh, figure walking I behind some, me. i definitely saw something i'm yeah. not it was just a, a trick I, saw I saw and i was here i mean i would have noticed that um so, so you think oh it's going to be you know the woman in white or the ghostly figure actually it's not most people's ghostly experiences is Uh, or some of them are visual and when they are visual they're of a solid figure and you only realize that solid figure is a ghost when it does something impossible like walk through a wall or you know that person is no longer with us but most ghostly experiences are just odd anomalies so there might be an odd smell uh, particularly if I'm in the room uh it might be uh, a sort of breeze again blame the dog (laughs) the ghost (laughs) I don't have that um, that's another book I had. Dogs explained. Um, so it's, it's, there's no there's no magic in my childhood. Um, so uh, so an odd smell, uh, an odd breeze, um, uh, and, and just a feeling of being watched yeah, uh, is often it. Um, so I, it, it's not just that classic sort of ghost ghostly apparition thing that you see in, in films. Um, it, 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 the experience is something quite different. And people do see them all over the place. Yeah, Where do you think that idea of ghosts that you can see through came from? I mean, I, I kind of assume it possibly came when people invented cameras. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first time you could have double exposures. But before that, it would have been probably an idea that wouldn't have occurred to people. That yeah. I've never actually looked back historically to see if that's where it happened. But, I mean, yeah, you know, that, that's our traditional way of thinking about it now and i don't know that's that's probably a certainly a british tradition it may be a western tradition uh as as well uh the answer is i don't know either um Mm. so so, somebody will know if anyone's if anyone's watching this and know then don't text in a question text in the answer that would be more helpful um so so people have unusual experiences they tend to have them um in places which have a reputation for being haunted and we should separate out first of all Ghosts, which are one-off experiences, you wake up and you see a ghost at the end of the bed or whatever, and haunted places, which is where people over time reliably have these experiences, often in the same place in that building. And so that, that place gets a reputation for being haunted. And the psychology and the science of those two things are somewhat different. Right. And so what what is it about certain places then how do they how do they end up getting that reputation in the first place once you've got the reputation then people are going in kind of primed and that's going to have psychological effects but what what leads it to happen in the first place well i I think this comes down to this comes down to the nub of it we've got to the the nub of it very surprisingly early Um, back off soon (laughs) (laughs) another another two minutes we will explain the whole of ghosts 
I, I think it comes down to why, why do we see ghosts? What, what work are they doing, as social psychologists would, would say? And for some people, if you've got something that's happened where something bad has happened to somebody – and you, you think, well, it should be a just world. And this person was killed in a horrible way and it wasn't their fault and they were innocent and so on. Then they get the opportunity to come back and, and haunt us mm-hmm. and, and, and to play on our guilt and, and, and to take revenge. And that becomes a just world, as, as it were. So often these places are associated with stories of death and the death is, is unfair in, right. in, in some way. So when we looked at um, uh, the haunting at Hampton Court, for example, you have the uh, beheading uh, there. Uh, and, and this was, you know, uh, that, that um, uh, it was a terrible death and uh, that, uh, uh, that there were, you know, there's a chance that ghost to come back and haunt the king and, and, and so on. So that, that's certainly one part of it. The other part is what I've, I've referred to as my Scooby-Doo theory of ghosts, which is that... Often on Scooby-Doo, for those of you who remember it, I can remember as a child had a book, Scooby-Doo, Explained, is that somebody would fake a ghost in order to keep people away from a building because they were doing some smuggling uh, racket or something. And I think to some extent, ghosts are created by us to keep us away from places where we would be vulnerable. So if you go into a dark room and it's quite large, which means that, that somebody could get to you, there could be a predator hiding, or a very small room, which means if you're attacked, you haven't got very far to, uh, to you haven't got the opportunity to run away. The ghosts we're creating in our mind um, are keeping us out of those, those spaces. They're keeping us safe. And it's a little bit like Scooby-Doo episodes. So, so therefore, you can see under both of those circumstances that certain places would develop reputations. Right, right. I mean, I mean, whenever I'm kind of asked about the psychology of ghosts, etc., I would say that the two biggest, the two most important psychological factors, and I think your your work kind of backs this up, would be context. You mm-hmm. know, Rory kind of talked about if you know that a place is supposed to be haunted, it changes how you feel when you go when you're walking around in it, uh, and also prior belief. Do you already believe in ghosts? And I mean, I think your work would support both of the idea that both of those have been really important factors. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I've been in a bit, a bit like you with these TV shows where you get carted around a lot of uh, sort of weird haunted places. There was one place, I now can't remember where it was. It's not a great story in that sense. Um, but I walked, uh, it was a house, and they said, go around the house and tell us which room you think is haunted. And I walked around the house, and it all felt very normal. Then I got to one particular room, and it was just weird it was just weird the proportions were just wrong in uh, it, and it did and it was like looking through at a stage effect called cracked oil which which they use on stage so you can't tell the distance on, on it was like that it was the weirdest experience and there's something in the quality of that room i think that that makes people a bit weird right. so uh, did you have that when you were wandering around weird places again very very rarely yeah. i can't think I mean, one of the things, again, with the kind of the, the, the programs that I was in, I mean, inevitably, you'd be filming overnight, and sometimes you were really, really tired, you know. Mm. But I can't remember on one particular occasion kind of standing in one room and just feeling kind of dizzy and lightheaded. Now, it may well have been nothing more than tiredness, but I'd imagine if I was a believer, I might have had a different interpretation 
of what yes. was on there. You know, it's a, and, and, and we should say these things build. So, so once you're in a scary space, you become hypervigilant. And now any sort of crack of a, the, the, the sound of footsteps or you start to hear your own physiology, your heart beating or whatever, and you interpret it within that context. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, some lovely work by uh, Jim Haram where he took uh, groups of people around the same cinema, told one it was haunted and the other it was just being renovated. And you've got all the weird experiences on the haunted group. Yeah. And those experiences were being experienced by the other group as well in terms of creaky staircases and so on, but they weren't interpreting them as, as ghostly. So I think context uh, really matters. The scariest thing, when we used to do the seances, you're in pitch darkness, absolute pitch darkness. And as a performer, you get very attuned to every sound in that room. And, and so in, in, the, in a fake seance, a little bit like a real seance, you ask everyone to hold hands. And the reason for that is you've just controlled 15 people around the table. And what you do not want is anyone standing up and clowning around in pitch darkness. It's really dangerous and you just don't want it. So I've, I've done hundreds of these. And on one of them, I'm doing the seance thing. I've done the spiel. We're halfway through the seance. And I hear a noise off to the side about two meters away from the group. And that's terrifying because it means that someone stood up. Yeah. So you do what you're trained to do, and it's in all the books, which is you go around the group and you say, everyone, I want you to squeeze the pan to the person on your left and say your name into the, the darkness. And that tells you where the missing person is. So you go straight into that. We whip around the group. Everyone's there. Ooh. <laughs> I'm thinking, right, this is now scary. So I, you can hear it in my voice. I'm kind of going, you know, as a kid, I've read seances explained, but this doesn't come up in any of the chapters. <laughs> so um, so I cut the whole thing short and uh, is the thing. Uh, I turn on the lights, I go over there. It's rats. We're performing in a historic venue and rats have got in. And that's what I, that is the scariest I've ever been. I was terrified. Now, now, I know that my wife is probably watching this, and she would find rats far scarier than any ghost. Oh. That would totally freak her out. <laughs> they're quite sweet rats. They're quite, they're, they're quite nice. Um, we went for a nice cup of tea afterwards. We, we, we talked about the experience with them. They were fine. <laughs> I mean, again, another thing that's kind of you know, I, I've noticed is that once people get the idea that maybe their own house is haunted, then even very mundane things are interpreted within that context. So you, know, you can't find your, your keys in the morning. It's because the ghost has moved them, you know, rather than I've just forgotten where I put them. Yeah. Uh, and so it can, it can be something that triggers that belief. Usually, you know, it, it might be, you know, objects appear to be moving and you can't think of an explanation or there are weird sounds or, or maybe an episode of sleep paralysis, you know, that right. something leads the person to have that belief in the first place. And then once it's taken hold an awful lot more is interpreted within that context. Yeah, it kicks off a sort of positive belief system, which then reinforces itself. And we, and we should say, I mean, although it's Halloween and we're going to get all a little bit scary and so on, it, it, if, if you believe in ghosts and you're in a haunted house, and particularly if it's your own house and you can't escape that, that's all a little bit scary. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so it's, yeah, for some people it's terrifying. Now, you mentioned sleep paralysis there. Should, should we talk about, you, you are, you know far more about sleep paralysis than, than me. Well, what? what is this thing of use? There's a kid... The one book I didn't have was Sleep Paralysis Explained. So <laughs> it'll be in the post to you tomorrow, Richard. <laughs> yeah, no, Sleep Paralysis uh, is one of my favourite topics. Um, in its most basic form, 
lots of people will have had it. The the estimates vary enormously, but in its most basic form, it's kind of it occurs between sleep and wakefulness, and it's a temporary period of paralysis. So you realise you can't move, and that obviously is a little bit disconcerting. But it usually just lasts a few seconds, and you snap out of it. But for some people, you get associated symptoms, and they typically would be a very, very strong sense of presence. Even if you can't see anything or hear anything, you know there is something there in the darkness, um, and it doesn't mean you any good at all. Uh, but you may get visual or auditory or tactile hallucinations, so you might go and see uh, lights moving around the room or dark shadows monstrous figures, demonic forms, all kinds of stuff. You might hear voices or footsteps or mechanical sounds. Um, in terms of the kind of tactile stuff, you might feel as if someone's holding, you might feel someone breathing on the back of your neck. And bear in mind, you can't move. You know, you're aware that you're in your bedroom. You're aware you're lying there in bed, but you can't move. Um, I mean, I get sent lots and lots of you know, first-hand accounts of this stuff. And they they really are creepy. It's really scary stuff because even though it's not real, and typically the person who's sending me their account knows it's not real, they've identified it as sleep paralysis, but it's still terrifying to know that's what that person was experiencing at the time. Again, like anything else, it doesn't explain all claims of uh, ghostly nighttime visitors, but a hell of a lot of them it does. You know, if you ask people, I mean, a lot of the time people, you say, well, you know, do you think you could move at the time? And people say, well, I, did, I didn't even try. I was just so terrified I wasn't moving, you know. But, uh, you know, you very often find there I've experienced it in its kind of milder forms. I've never had the full whistles and bells version, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say, but I have experienced it in its milder form. And I say the estimates vary, but it, it seems that about there was a big meta-analysis by a friend of mine, Brian Sharpless, in the States. And overall, it seemed like amongst the general population, it was about 8% who reported that experienced it at least once. But there were two groups that showed rates of about 30%, and that was psychiatric patients and students. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it makes sense because if you've got the underlying predisposition – Anything that disrupts your sleep cycle makes it more likely to actually manifest. And so there are two groups with very, very disrupted sleep patterns. I read somewhere, if it does happen to you, that if you just try and wiggle your toes, that's enough to break the paralysis. You can try and wiggle somebody else's toes, but that's quite hard. You say, I mean, you say that as if, oh, just wiggle your toes. That's the thing. It takes an enormous effort of will. You really have to summon your strength. And people feel like they have difficulty breathing. There's pressure on the chest, it feels like. They feel as if someone's suffocating them, and they feel that they're going to die. You know, it, it is absolutely uh, very, very scary. I've never had that. I, I used to, um, a few years ago, I had a lot of night terrors, um, which are very, sort of, well, similar in the sense you attribute them to, to a ghost. And so you uh, open your eyes, you sit up, you often scream, and you see this, this, this often demonic figure uh, or, or sort of a huge spider or whatever, and you're absolutely, as you say, convinced that it's going to do you no good at all. And uh, you scream, and if you're sleeping next to somebody, it wakes that person up. They're genuinely awake. You are actually still in stage four sleep, so you can go straight back to sleep, but now they're wide awake for <laughs> quite a long time. So I always think it's more ter- terrible for them than it is for the person experiencing it. But I had that many, many times. And, and um, can you... But you remember the experience the next day, do you? Because no. 
I, I was under the impression that with night terrors, people t- often didn't remember the experience of night terror, even though their partner did. Yeah, so this is the thing. So, so if your partner says to you, oh, anything odd happened last night? Then you go, oh, yeah, I remember now. But in um, uh, when I used to live in London, uh, there was a time I woke up and I thought, boy, what a dream that was. I dreamt there were some demonic animals trying to get into this room. Oh, dear. But I looked over at the door and there was a chair I'd moved across, like a dining chair. I had wedged it so hard under the door, I'd almost broken it back legs off. And I'd, I'd been asleep. I'd done the whole thing. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah. And I kind of often think of t- night terrors and sleep paralysis as being kind of uh, flip sides of each other. Because with, with sleep paralysis, you definitely remember it and you can't move. With night terrors... You can move and often end up trying to climb up the curtains to get away from whatever it is that you think yeah. is there and, and often don't remember it the next morning. So, you know, there are differences, even yeah. though the other thing is that, you know, we know that sleep paralysis happens during REM stage sleep, whereas as you stay uh, night terrors, it's kind of stage four sleep. But yeah, um, and, but yeah I mean, do not touch the person. If, they have, if you see if your person you're sleeping next to sits up like that and screams, do not touch them or indeed move. Because they will become convinced, take it from me, they will become convinced you are that attacking entity. So the, the right. best thing to do is just stay there um, and just quietly say their name if you want to, to bring them back into the thing. But, but do not move um, because it's, yeah, you, you are not in control of yourself, my lord, um, when, uh, when those things happen. So um, anyway, we've gone off, we've gone off go. So, yeah, so I did... Yeah. Um, just a more quick comment, Richard, because again, that's that's kind of just for anybody who's watching who has a partner that suffers from sleep paralysis. People who suffer from sleep paralysis are often trying to scream at the top of their lungs, and no noise is coming out, except maybe for a little kind of. Oh. Now, sometimes well, their partner recognises that noise. Can I do that again? Yeah, oh, <laughs> that's good. Oh, that was nice, isn't it? But yeah, your partner can sometimes recognise. Oh my gosh, they're having sleep paralysis, and you should wake them up. Then just shake them awake, and that'll be fine. It'll break the spell, and they won't. You know, it won't have any traumatic consequences. So again, opposite opposite advice for how to for how to partners should deal with it if they realise the person in bed next to them is going through it. Yeah. Um, again, this, I'm getting back to this thing about um, sometimes people not because you can't think of an explanation for some noise or some or movement or something that's happening in the house you know people will often think well maybe it's a ghost you know uh whereas obviously in fact just because you can't think of an explanation doesn't mean necessarily there isn't one and and you and i will both be familiar with lots of cases where some really obscure unexpected explanations are actually the correct ones and one of my favorites recently was i don't know if you saw the the um story in the paper probably about 18 months ago of a guy who had um a little tool shed and he used a little workshop in his garden he used to work all day and he'd be a bit messy he'd leave all his stuff out and he'd lock up go to bed come back the next day going and everything had been put back in his toolbox and he couldn't figure out what it was the youtube there's a video of this on youtube him and his mate set up a camera and it was a little mouse oh. <laughs> this little mouse coming in and putting all this stuff back in the box. I mean, it's great to show during talks because people just sit there going, ah. <laughs> but, you know, if a sceptic had put that forward as an explanation, you'd have thought, oh, yeah, you're really clutching at straws now. But that is what it was, you know. Well, I, so, I've, 
I'm not an expert on mice, but if you've got <laughs> a hammer, I wouldn't have thought a mouse could pick that up. Oh, no, it's, it's the little bits of wire and so on, all the little bits and bobs oh. that were on the net. Like, you know, picking up this monkey wrench. and <laughs> had a team of rats to do that for him. <laughs> That's what was in my head. I thought it was like, you know, uh, a vice. I just want to push that over one side, a couple of hammers um, and a pair of pliers. Um, so well, I, I, got start, I got started this ghostly business um, when I got a call from uh, Hampton Court Palace. And they've got the haunted uh, corridor, uh, which ghosts allegedly wandered up and down. That's the name of it. And they wanted someone to go and investigate. And I hadn't done much ghost stuff. Actually. I hadn't done any ghost stuff at that point. But I assembled a, a sort of crack team of uh, uh, people that were free that weekend. And uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> really crack. Oh, yeah. And we went Very down crack. and we did this this thing where we took groups of people around the, the, the haunted corridor. But before that, what I'd underestimated is how big a news story this was going to be because the first time anything had been done in a royal palace. And so it really played big overseas because it was like British aristocracy and, and ghosts and all this stuff. And I hadn't seen that coming. So I get down there and uh, we have a press conference. And so I sit at this press conference and it's going to be beamed live to various places across the world. That's sort of how big this this thing had become. And I sit down. We just sort of saw all the shots. And then I say, um, it's quite a long drive, so I'm just going to step outside for 10 minutes, and then I'll come back and we can start. And I swear this story is true, all right? This, this story is true. I go outside. This is the only time in my life this has ever happened to me. A car goes past with some kids in and, I mean, teenagers or something, and one of them throws an egg. And the egg hits me and goes all down my jacket. And I oh. and I thought I'd wiped it off, but I saw I hadn't, and it was being broadcast live, so I had to go. So I go back in, and I've got slime all down the, the thing. And so <laughs> slime. Yes, like the ghost slimed me. It's unbelievable timing. Uh, it's the only time I've been egged, uh, which is itself is quite remarkable. Um, so we did that thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what we found out was that there were parts of the haunted corridor which have got hidden panels in, that have been hidden away over the years, and uh, that's causing weird drafts, and those drafts people are interpreting as ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, we did some work on electromagnet, electromagnet, as I say it, electromagnetic fields um, and didn't really find very much of a relationship there. And this was related to Persinger's work, um, which we might want to talk about in a moment. Um, and But from there, I then came up to Edinburgh and we did a similar experiment, the Edinburgh Vaults, where we put individuals into vaults, asked them if they had weird experiences. And the vaults that had a history of being haunted were the ones where people had weird experiences, even though they didn't know the reputation of those. That's really interesting, which does say suggest that there are certain environmental factors that do lead people to feel. Yeah, Yeah. or they're haunted is the other possibility. Um, Or they're haunted. Yeah. And, and, And so in there, it was the very large vaults where I think you walked in and felt vulnerable or the very small ones where you thought if there is a tiger over in that size, 
um, then I'm not going to stand much of a chance. Those are the things which, which seem to me to be obvious. Um, so we did that. So we also did some work with Vic Tandy up here as well with the infrasound that we should talk about in a second. And that's sort of my introduction to kind of um, ghost hunting-y stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, just to kind of, for anybody, again, for anybody that's not familiar with these ideas, because um, again, I, I, we did a project on this. As you know, we did a study of this. The, the idea from Mike, Michael Persinger, who, who sadly passed away recently, didn't he? Which is which is a shame. Um, but the idea was that unusual patterns of electromagnetic activity in the environment could affect certain susceptible individuals and produce unusual patterns of firing in the temporal lobes. And that would be experienced as some kind of paranormal uh, phenomenon, you know, maybe an apparition or sense of presence or whatever else it may be. And, and Vic Tandy put forward a similar idea with respect to environmental infrasound. That's sound energy below the audible frequency range, typically at about 19 hertz. Um, and I mean, it's interesting the way those ideas have kind of caught on within the paranormal community they're almost kind of taken as as facts which i think they are far from personally yeah. uh, i mean they're intriguing ideas um and, and as as you'll be aware a few, few years back i did a study in collaboration with usman hack and various other people where we thought well if there's anything in these ideas wouldn't it be fun to build an artificial haunted room where we just get people to go in and we play around with electromagnetic fields and infrasound and so on um, all obviously all safe, physically safe, but the, but for ethical reasons, we had to say to people before they went in, uh, you may be exposed to infrasound, you may be exposed to unusual patterns of electromagnetic activity, you may get both, you may get neither, you won't know consciously, you won't know which condition you're in, um, but as a result, you may have some anomalous experiences. And again, I'm talking about the kind of thing you were talking about. I, a chill, a sense of presence, uh, uh, dizziness, whatever else it may be. And we found that quite a, a sizable minority of people did indeed report those kinds of um, uh, sensations. But when we analysed the results, it didn't matter what condition they were in. It didn't matter whether the infrasound was on or off. It didn't matter whether the electromagnetic field was on or off. Um, what, it, what the number of weird experiences they reported did correlate with was their scores on a questionnaire which Persinger used to use, the temporal lobe signs inventory. He would use this as a way of trying to identify people with these labile temporal lobes. But that is also known to correlate with, wait for it, suggestibility. So in other words, this parsimonious explanation is that if you say to suggestible people, go in there, you might have a weird experience. Some of them do. So, I mean, it would have been much more exciting and interesting to get results related to infrasound or, and or... Uh, electromagnetic fields but we didn't all that shows is that the setup we had did not produce those effects i don't think it kind of is a killer blow for either idea but i also don't think there's the evidence in support of the ideas is that strong either yeah i I, mean, I, say, I wouldn't put the two of the, those two theories quite side by side in the sense of i'm far more skeptical about persinger's theory because the the brain is pretty well insulated against electromagnetic fields and the ones he's talking about are very very weak um, Vic's one, and again, unfortunately, Vic is no longer with us, uh, of yeah. course. Um, lovely man. Lovely man. Lovely man. And um, his idea, at, at least, is I don't know if you can hear that. There's, there's, there's Halloween activity outside my window. Um, I hope it's that, or they're actually genuine ghosts trying to get in. Um, 
And watch it on Twitch like the rest of them. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, so, so Vic's one was, is, is much more plausible about uh, infrasound. That absolutely can affect people at certain uh, levels, and particularly if you get standing waves set up in a, in a room. Um, so we did an experiment, which was a concert at the South Bank with Sarah Anglis and um, uh, Jenny, a pianist, and, and Kieran O'Keefe, psychologist, and that's where we pumped in infrasound to certain parts of a, com- of a, of a um, concert and asked people if they had weird experiences. And there we did find uh, yeah. a relationship with it. But this is the thing. When we were trying that out, some people could hear the infrasound, even though it's supposed to be below um, uh, auditory levels. And also, I can remember when it was put on, sometimes the sheet of paper that people were holding and they were started to quiver. <laughs> which is quite spooky <laughs> I mean, nothing we should say about infrasound which is why Vic was interested as a ghostly activity is that it put, makes candles flicker yeah his is far from a crazy theory I, I think under certain circumstances it probably holds some water I mean I know, I know Jason Braithwaite has actually kind of critiqued it probably as thoroughly as it could be but again as i say i mean we weren't kind of concluding that that therefore you know showed these ideas had no merit mm. uh we just didn't have any evidence to support to support them so you know yeah um yeah um a few other things that we were gonna we were gonna have a chat about um well, we've done sleep paralysis um photos this is another thing you remember you and i did a did a, a two-hander i think it was in brighton was it about yes. photos and paranormal Yes. Happy day. <laughs> uh, we had a very tricky question from William James. Yeah, that's how yes. far that goes. Yeah. Because he was, what, what is this photography thing of which you speak? <laughs> exactly. That's right. And yeah. How does it relate to consciousness? I said, William, <laughs> let it go. I said. <laughs> One of the things about photography is that, I mean, basically, the kind of whole history of psychical research as it used to be called and parapsychology as it is now is the the, the histories have been intertwined you know, from the moment that photography was invented people started taking spirit photographs yeah uh, and, you know you, you kind of come up to up to date and there's still people finding ghosts in their images or uh yeah i mean again the whole history of technology the, the, and particularly recording technology because people want hard evidence that you know Again, one of the things that struck me about the taking part in this Haunted Homes TV series, because nobody involved actually would fake anything, it didn't really make for great TV. Problem. It's always in people's heads. People would be genuinely frightened and reporting, seeing stuff. But, you know, it was never recorded. I mean, there was one exception to that, which I think I've mentioned to you before, but... Um, we did a we did a program in um, a radio station, Radio Beacon in the Midlands, where, uh, amongst other things, people had reported sometimes hearing children's voices singing Ringa Ringa Roses and sometimes hearing a ghostly sneeze. And I mean, a long story short, um, they actually recorded. You know, this is the only time we had any objective evidence. They recorded on the EVP recorders. Uh, sound 
And, of course, you know, I was kind of interviewed, kind of making a big deal of this, kind of what do you make of this then, you smart-ass sceptic? They didn't use those words, but that's what they meant. Um, and I'm kind of saying, well, you know, it does sound like a sneeze, but it could be 101 other things, you know. Uh, the second night we were there, uh, I kind of popped into the loo before we started recording on the landing where this had been recorded. And as I came out, the our paranormal investigator, the guy who brought all this electronic kit and wizardry with him, very, very disgruntled look on his face, and he's pointing at the wall. And uh, I looked to where he's pointing, and there it was, an automatic air freshener. Okay. <laughs> and sure enough, we hung around for a couple of minutes, and that was the noise we heard. Now, we did an interview to camera the next day to explain that we knew what the sneeze sound was. It wasn't a ghost. Unfortunately, when they edited the program, they didn't have enough time to, to squeeze in our explanation. They made a big deal about the sneeze, but... Nothing about the explanation. It would have been great if it, it wasn't an automatic one. It was being operated by a mouse. And that was the same <laughs> mouse that had also been responsible for the shed ghost. I think, I think, I think, I think this is the, my mouse theory of ghosts. I think yes. all ghosts, all ghosts without all exception, ghosts. can be explained by mice. Yes. Um, mice. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we did um, Science of Ghosts, which was with the Edinburgh Science Festival. It's myself, Caroline Watt, and Gordon Rutter did that. We asked people to send in their ghostly photos. Um, I've got some of them to show folks. So I'm hoping that um, people can see it. If I click on this screen here, um, I don't know whether people can see that. Have we got any way of telling me if people can see that? I can't see that. I can, I can see, see it. it. Okay. <laughs> But you can't see it, Chris. Is that correct? So uh, you can make up any old rubbish now, Richard, and I'll believe you. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is one of Chris, uh, totally naked. I don't know how that got in there. And, um, uh, it might be Halloween, but we don't want to frighten people that much. No, that's right. And before you ask, that's not a mouse. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so this is an orbs photo, Chris, that we're looking at. So right, this yeah. is very, very common. Uh, I think this one is from the Edinburgh Vaults. And you can see these little orby bits over it. It convinces a lot of people about ghostly activity. And they're basic, that's basically dust uh, in the air. And it's reflecting off, off uh, the flash and into the, the camera. But orb photos, really common. I, I think we had about 500 photos submitted. And I would think 200 of them were orb once. Yeah. Uh, next one uh, that we're looking at is uh, looks like this. And that's a strange patterning of a, an oddly sort of like a kind of honeycomb patterning of a ghost. And that's the camera strap um, that's folded in front of the, uh, uh, the camera. So these are all ones we could explain. You mentioned double images uh, earlier on, Chris. And this is one, I think, from the, uh, the top of Edinburgh Castle, which has got a lovely um, double image uh, in there. Looks like a spirit off to the, uh, the, far, the far right. Uh, the next one is a sort of movement of uh, cigarette ends. The camera's moved down, uh, and you get this kind of um, odd patterning as the cigarette sort of continues to burn at night, um, as it were. Uh, the next one, not quite certain where it is. Let me just see what we've got on it. It's a, it's a figure standing at the end of a pier-like structure, and... It's very, very odd. It looks like a, an astronaut, I guess. And we put this up on the website and said, can anyone explain it? And someone could because they recognized where it was. And when you go to that place, then you realize there is an odd structure at the end of that pier, which from a distance looks like an astronaut. 
right. so it, it's, yeah. it's it's great this is what's great about doing this project is we could stick these things out and you have people all over the globe who go hold on a second i recognize that place or whatever uh the next one if anyone's ever seen me give a ghost talk will recognize it's two kids uh in the park uh and we've covered up their faces because it's not about the kids but hopefully in the uh river behind them you can see the the demonic face scared staring at the uh the children and so um this is where we wrote back to the parents and we said your children must be slaughtered and how were we to know they had no sense of humor that's all i'm no we didn't do that at all um so uh this gets us on to something which both of us have, have spoken about which is uh pareidolia um and basically what you're looking at there are rocks and leaves reflected uh, in the uh, water. Um, and I think whenever you present anything that looks like a face to humans, you know, because we'd rather see a face that isn't there than miss one that is, we're, we're intensely sort of social animals, then um, we, we, we start seeing faces all over the place. Uh, so you can show that. I've got a little uh, uh, bag here with a zip and two buttons on it that looks like a face. Um, this is uh, what I call emotional baggage. Um, that's my little joke there. Terrible little joke. Uh, the next one, as I appreciate, Chris, you can't see it. It's this photo, and it's very, very curious. It's um, some some women standing in a room, and between the legs of two of the women is a tiny little face, a little sort of ghostly face. And I've blown it up large and put it onto the screen there. What is a astonishing about this shot is no none of those women have ever come forward there's one two three four six women in that that shot and it's gone all around the world and 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 never ever come forward to say yes we were there at that time and we put it on the blog and and people didn't um uh see it uh, and the next one is Tantallon Castle, which we investigated with the Edinburgh skeptics. This is somebody, this is a castle in East Lothian, um, and they had a picture of an old woman. They, they sort of took a picture and they said that that part of the castle wasn't really accessible to the public and you couldn't get a shot quite like that. So we went up there uh, and I played the role of the old woman. Um, and you can sort of see that I can get a very, very similar uh, sort of shot. That's me on the, the right there. Uh, so, yeah, we, we investigated a lot of these. I can go back now, I think, to Skypey stuff over here. Get you back on, Chris. Um, we investigated a lot of these. And in all of – we had about a million hits on the site. I think about 500 photos sent in. Unfortunately, no evidence of, of ghostly activity, but kind of fascinating psychologically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, you, you get a similar kind of periodolic effect in the auditory domain, in my humble opinion, uh, with respect to the electronic voice phenomenon. Um, you know, the idea that if you leave a recording device in a reputedly haunted location, you can actually record spirit voices. And there are lots and lots of websites you can go to and you can play clips of these alleged spirit voices. And I mean, there are two possibilities. One is that they've inadvertently recorded living people they didn't realize were in the environment at the time. You know, I remember doing a good morning or whatever it was, this, you know, one of the daytime TV programs and the paranormal investigator playing his EVP to me. And I had to admit, yes, it was someone singing Celine Dion songs and it was terrifying. I just don't think it was a ghost. That's all, you know, other times it's probably not even a voice at all. It's kind of something that's a kind of random background noise with a bit of voice like quality to it. And people are 
reading a meaning into it, often based on the context they know they're in. You know, and again, you find if you go to these websites, a typical EVP sample will be very short, very poor quality. <laughs> you can hear, you can't typically make out what the message is until someone tells you or you read it. You know, and I, I kind of do whole talks doing examples of this play to the audience, and it's, it's good fun, but, you know, and it illustrates the point. But, yeah. Um, okay. Um, I have got some notes here that you sent me earlier. Okay. We're 50 minutes in. I don't know whether um, – I don't. when do we take a break and then do we do Q&A after that? Yeah, well, should we do – we'll do another five minutes. Yeah. And take a 50-minute break. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, first off, I mean, uh, is there anything any, – any particular recent projects you'd care to mention, Richard, that have excited you? It's funny. It's so odd you say that. The chances – um, so the, as, as people are into my stuff will know, um, I've been working with uh, Jordan Culver and Owen Watts uh, and uh, Rick Worth uh, to produce Hocus Pocus. So I, I think most of our, our work, both you and I, is about skept- getting skepticism out to the public. Um, and so this is a, a kind of comic-based thing. They're, they're fantastic uh, illustrators uh, and, and writers. And so this is uh, it's not only for kids, it's for everyone. So it's a, a kind of sceptical comic. Uh, one of the things that annoys me is that often all the books and the TV shows and, and everything out there in the popular media is rarely from a sceptical perspective. It's it, Scepticism doesn't sell traditionally. Uh, so we produce Hocus Pocus as the first issue. The next issue coming out is all about ghosts, actually. It has Vic in it and Harry Price, who's just one of my huge heroes i love anything to do with harry price perhaps we'll talk about him in uh, in q and a um and this one which is issue one is now extremely hard to find uh, i have a couple of them and so i'm going to be giving out uh, the a couple of the, the best two questions we get i'll, I'll send people a signed copy of uh, of that so in my notes here go dr- go grab a drink Stroke snack, stroke toilet. So go away, grab a toilet, and be back in 15 minutes, and we'll see you then. Thanks very much. Welcome back, everybody. I hear that the donations have been coming in, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, I was told that it was already would, would past our target. It was at 1,500, but we'd love to get more because it's a really, really good cause. So if you've not donated yet, please do. Uh, just to remind you that if you want to donate, you go to sitp.online forward stroke charity. Okay. Now, we've got some questions coming in here. Uh, what we've decided we're going to do is each take turns in choosing a question that we like the look of and want something to say. So I'm going to throw it over to you, Richard. The first uh-huh. choice, which question would you like? Um, well, thank you. Uh, I'm going to go with the question that says, um, uh, how much is Hocus Pocus, the comic, and where can we get it from? Um, it's, I can't actually see that question in the list, but I'm assuming it's there. Uh, so it's it's six ninety nine and it's online. Um, but first of all, thank you to everyone who's contributed. Keep the contributions going in, as, uh, coming in. As Chris says, amazing charity and phenomenal. They've raised that amount already, so that that's great. Uh, more seriously, my question is: uh, I like. Uh, I once saw a man uh, turn a tea towel into a chicken. Uh, do you think this was a supernatural event? Um, I do. 
I do. I can find no uh, rational explanation for either the event or why the man did it and continues to do it. Um, but for those of you who haven't been to, I think it's QED. I, I may have done this at Skeptics in the pub. It's mainly QED that I've done it. Um, now, I can't actually see myself on camera, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that you can see this, this, this tea towel. Um, this, this is the very tea towel. You can, uh, during lockdown, uh, annoy uh, everyone in your social bubble uh, by telling that you can turn this into a chicken. And what you do is just, I hope you can see what I'm doing here. I'm just rolling up one side like that, and then you tuck this under your chin, or somebody else's chin, and roll up the other side like that. And then um, you have to explain to people that having a good imagination is a sign of high IQ, uh, because, boy, are they going to need that in a few moments' time. Uh, you then pull out uh, each of these bits uh, here, uh, just pulling out each of the sort of four ends of the two rolls like that. That's it. Got it? Like that. And you then grab two of them. That's it. And at the moment, it looks much like a odd tea towel. But in a few seconds' time, this will be a chicken. You will not believe that you saw this um, or, indeed, uh, that a grown man showed it to you. Uh, so you pull like that, and lo and behold, I hope you can see it, uh, have, a, have a chicken uh, there. So there we go. That's what I did. I did it at QED. I that I was then... <laughs> I was, I was forced never to do it again. No, no, no. Uh, I did it uh, anyway. So thank you um, uh, for, uh, I think it's, uh, well, I can't remember the name, Foy GL, uh, who asked that, that very, very pertinent question. Over to you, Chris. Well, my, my, my only thought there is that it's just such a pity that the James Randi Educational Foundation have discontinued the million-dollar prize. You could be a very rich man. A very I, I, rich man. To Randy, I, I said to him, you know, I, I think that that's what may have actually forced them to close. Yeah. yeah. They were going to lose money. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm going to choose uh, Ellie's question here. Do you think that the pandemic will change reports of ghosts, increased anxiety, and inability to have a spook to leave a spooky environment, etc.? I think Ellie, you're absolutely right. And as it happens. I wrote a little article on this for the Skeptic magazine, which is now available free online. Um, so do check it out. Uh, it's under new editorship. It's Mike Marshall of the Merseyside Skeptics, who's uh, doing a great job. Um, but it was uh, it was that very question that I tried. I wanted to answer. Uh, because I'd been approached by a journalist who was writing an article on that very question. Um, and being a good old sceptic, my immediate response is, well, is there any evidence that this is happening? Because the, you know, the question was asked in terms of why why is there an increase in these reports? And I said, well, is there? What's the evidence? Now, the actual evidence is not – there is some suggestive evidence, but it's not particularly compelling – but also, to follow up on that, it would not surprise me at all if that is the case, if there is an increase, for various reasons. Um, one is that we, we do have pretty good evidence that the, during the pandemic, people's sleep patterns have been disrupted. Um, so they're kind of awake more during the night than they may otherwise have been. There are obviously lots more people working at home, so they're spending more time in the house. They're noticing kind of creaks and noises the old houses in particular tend to make anyway, but usually you're not around to hear them or you just don't notice them. And one thing we've talked about already, sleep paralysis. If you have the underlying predisposition to sleep paralysis, then disrupted sleep patterns will make it more likely to manifest. And also a kind of final factor that's worth mentioning is just 
any kind of general increase in stress, anxiety, uncertainty about the future does tend to lead to an increase in magical thinking of, of, of all kinds. Uh, and that will certainly include kind of paranormal related beliefs uh, and and the anxieties that might come along with them. So, um, as I say, I'm not actually I can't say that there is any solid evidence I've seen as yet that shows that there is an increase in kind of reports of ghostly encounters during the pandemic compared to pre-lockdown times. But I would certainly expect that to be the case. And it'd be an interesting hypothesis to test properly. Over to you, Richard. Very good. Very good. Um, I'm loving these questions, keeping them, keep them coming in. Um, what's the, this is anonymous. Uh, what's the least bad ghost claim you've come across, i.e. hardest to explain or one that's hot offered half decent evidence? So, uh, two two things I think um, on that. Actually, it's similar to the one that's that's um, uh, below that. Actually, was your favourite ghost story? Um, when we did Hampton Court, nothing uh, unexplained happened while we were there. But then we left, and a whole uh, the CCTV caught a very very strange phenomenon, which is at one point uh, some fire doors kind of flew open from Hampton Court. And there's somebody standing there in what looks like a long fur coat. It looks quite a historical kind of outfit. And those CCTV pictures went all around the world. And nobody said, that's me. And it would be hard to fake something like that at Hampton Court because the CCTV covers is so extensive uh, because of what's housed there. And it doesn't seem likely to me it's possible that staff might mess around like that. Certainly the staff I met, that that wouldn't be their kind of attitude at all because um, of where they're working. So it's a curious one. It's online. You see this kind of character throw open the doors. um, And it's not obvious to me. I thought that would be debunked quite quickly. Someone would say that was me. I was dressed like that or or whatever. Hasn't been. So so very curious. Um, In terms of my favorite ghost story, does my favorite everything to do with the paranormal uh it's always harry price who was a, a ghost hunter in the 1930s and price was great um so he went and investigated a, a talking mongoose he went to, to germany to, to with an ancient spell to try and change a goat uh into a, a handsome prince and so on um and I, I won't spoil the end of those two stories uh for you but suffice to say um uh, uh, he was unsuccessful on, on both endeavour. Uh, but he, he also uh, took over Bawley Rectory. And he's a smart guy, Price. I mean, he, he was always got one eye on publicity. And so he was thinking, how do you generate ghost reports from this? So he basically recruited a team of about 40, 50 investigators and asked them to spend the night at um, Bawley Rectory for several nights, actually, and record all the weird things that happened. And as Chris says, as soon as you put people into an alleged ghostly place and ask them to report their weird experiences, they'll have some very odd experiences. He put them all together in the locked book of Bawley, and he went, there you go, Britain's England's uh, most haunted house. And so it's a kind of a smart move because then he can go, it's nothing to do with me. There's all these independent investigators. Amazing. And he knew exactly what he's doing. He gave them each a blue book that told them where, you know, how to report this stuff and what most people had experienced and so on. So he was a he was a smart guy. 
And he, no one can really work out whether he was sceptical or not. But I just like Borley Rectory, I think, as a, as a ghost story. And I love that investigation because it's, it's, it's canny. It's not sceptical. It's just very canny. Chris. Okay. Um, here's one from Anonymous. Anonymous has sent in lots of questions this evening, actually. Um, yeah. Is it possible to officially induce sleep paralysis in the lab? Would it be ethical? And then in capital letters with an exclamation mark, do it. <laughs> well, actually, it has been done. Yes, there's some Japanese research. Um, we kind of mentioned, we touched on this briefly earlier, but sleep paralysis happens uh, the, in the REM stage of sleep. During a normal sleep cycle, uh, it, you go through kind of about 90 minutes repetitious cycles during the night. Within each cycle, you go uh, on a normal night's sleep, you go through stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, then you come back up again. Now, these are all on these different stages you know, your heart rate changes, your breathing, your EEG, and so on. And you go down, and then you come up again, and you go into what's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And that is the phase of sleep during which vivid dreams are most likely to be reported. And during REM sleep, the muscles of the body are actually paralyzed, presumably to stop you acting out the actions of the dream. Something probably that goes wrong a little bit during night terrors. Um, but, um, well, actually, that doesn't happen during REM sleep, does it, as we said before? Anyway, um, so what you've got with sleep paralysis is you've got a situation where, to put it simply, your, your brain wakes up, but your body doesn't. And so you can see that you're in your bedroom, you often can open your eyes, you can't move and you may have all this weird dream imagery coming through into normal waking consciousness. Um, so how do you actually go about inducing it in the, in the laboratory? Uh, well, what these Japanese researchers did was to monitor the uh, physiolo psychophysiological activity. And every time people went into REM, they would wake them up again. And if you do this, if you deny people going into that REM phase, you get what's called a REM rebound effect. And what, what happens then is rather than going through the earlier phases and then coming back up into REM, you go straight into REM as soon as you fall asleep. And that seems to be particularly associated with sleep paralysis. And so they could actually study it live in the lab, which is brilliant. You know, we know we know there weren't any demons. We know, you know it was a hallucinatory experience. Um, the problem with the research is, of course, it's incredibly – some strange <laughs> – some strange Wait, it must be ghost activity. <laughs> the problem with, uh, with those kind of studies is they're incredibly labor intensive uh, because even if you get people into the sleep laboratory who are susceptible to sleep paralysis, there is no guarantee that you'll be able to induce an episode on that particular night. So you may be there for a month. And maybe if you're lucky, record one or two episodes. And of course, you know, you've got to have people to staff it. You've got to have the equipment running. So very little of that research has been done. But there is some, and you can do it. You can induce sleep paralysis by that method. Over to you, Richard. Ah, very good. I don't know what your strange sounds were there, Chris. Getting strange sounds. It's probably just in my head. I often get yeah. them. It's the voice. Yes, this time of night it happens to all of us. Um, so, what's the this anonymous again? What's the story behind the hog and deer heads behind Richard? Um, so, I don't collect taxidermy. Uh, the pieces that are behind me, we're in the seance room actually, by the way. Uh, so this is, I've held many seances in this room. So, many objects that are, are very odd here. This is our um, uh, seance bell uh, here, which um, there we are. 
which was actually dug up in the, the garden of a haunted house, genuinely haunted house. Um, so the pieces on there, uh, first of all, are very, very old, very, very old. Uh, so I wouldn't have uh, modern day taxidermy. Uh, but the history behind them is linked to ghosts because I would think close to 20 years ago, I did a fake seance at a house in London. And then the uh, person who asked me to do it phoned me up about a couple of days later and said, I'm sorry, but uh, we've essentially gone bankrupt. Uh, my, my entire family, for various reasons, have, have lost a vast amount of money. I don't, I don't quite know what it was. It was a dodgy deal or something. Um, however, we feel terrible because you came and did this seance when I was working as a magician. Um, so when you were here, you did point out the two goats and the hog that you really liked on the wall. Um, so we're going to send them to you. So <laughs> these are the fee uh, for a seance about 20 years ago. Uh, they're very, very old pieces, uh, as I say. Uh, but, yeah, we have a, a lot of um, – you can probably see the door knocker as well uh, over here uh, and, and say the, uh, uh, the seance um, uh, bell here. So I'm surrounded uh, by ghostly uh, artifacts here. I don't know whether we're going to get any messages uh, during uh, this, but fingers crossed we do. Did you have to pay tax on those? You know, you send a horn in or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I thought you were about to do a taxidermy. Is it it's like a, is that how it works with taxidermy? Or I would have done. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> there's a question here. Uh, do non-skeptic Ghostbusters in real life have special equipment like in the film? If yes, what instruments do they have and what do they purport to detect? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, I, I, I've kind of worked with various people who, who I really like kind of people who are genuine, sincere believers, trying their best to find objective evidence that there is spirit activity in the spirit world. So they come in with all kinds of kit. Now, and this will include things like, obviously, like night cameras, infrared cameras, motion detectors, electronic voice, EVP recorders, electronic voice phenomenon recorders, um, and 101 other bits of kit. And they spend all their money on, on buying this stuff. And again, if you watch any of the American programs that I'm not recommending, but if you want an insight into this, go and watch them. Uh, they, they, they do bring in all this kind of electronic equipment. And I think it's basically because they want to convince you that the, what they're doing is science. And it really, really isn't. I mean, half the time, they're, they're, not, they're not even sure how the equipment works properly. I can remember on, on one occasion, um, there was a claim that there was a, a ghost in, in a house in Leicester and the Sun newspaper on its website had had a, had a video clip of a, a paranormal investigator holding a thermometer and communicating with the ghost, apparently, and getting him to lower the temperature. So you had this digital display. And as he was saying, please, can you lower the temperature by another degree? And the temperature was kind of fluctuating up and down. But the general trend was downwards. And within a minute or two, it had gone down by a number of degrees. Um, and I ended up having to take part in an investigation with him for the TV. Uh, and by this time, I had been informed that he was not using his equipment properly. He thought it was measuring the kind of ambient general room temperature, but it wasn't. It measures the temperature of wherever you're pointing it. Um, and so what was happening here 
is that as he was holding the device and tending to point it upwards towards the top of the wall, because heat rises, so the top of the wall will be a little bit hotter, but as your hand gets tired, it goes down lower, and the display was correspondingly going lower. Um, so when we got together to do the investigation together, this was again for a TV thing, so it was all being filmed, and he repeated this demonstration, it worked in exactly the same way, and I just said, well, you know, can I just, can I just borrow that for a second and have a look at it? And I kind of held it and pointed it at the top of the wall, the temperature's quite relatively high, but at the bottom of the wall, it's relatively low. And there, there you've got it. That's the explanation. You know? Now, what the paranormal investigators will always say is we don't conclude that it's a paranormal phenomenon until we've ruled out every other possible explanation. And in my experience, that is often not the case. Over to you, Richard. Very good. Very good. Um, yes, I've seen lots of that, that equipment. It always just seems rather odd to me that you need all of that equipment um, to, to sort of see a ghost. I, I think that given that there's a, a huge literature that you can just see them, um, it just sort of seems to me that might be a more effective way. Which brings us uh, to Anonymous again. Uh, when a believer confronts you with a case which you have no good explanation, how do you respond? Uh, just say, don't know, that's fine, or something else. Very good question. And it gets into eyewitness testimony, which, which Chris and I might want to, to speak about. So here's the thing, from a, uh, from a sort of social psychological point of view, when people tell you their experience, what, what work are they doing? That would be my question. And so one of the things they're saying is, look, I've experienced this remarkable thing. Because of that, it makes me a rather special person. And therefore, if you attack that, you're attacking their sense of identity to some extent. And I think the possibility of them changing their mind um, when you've got your identity at, at stake is actually pretty slim. And so also what you're probably getting is a report that's been shaped over many retellings because the worst possible thing is that person has an experience they can't explain they tell their friend and their friend says, hold on a second, couldn't it just been rats under the floorboard? And so the next time they tell it, they'll get rid of that potential explanation. They'll say, this, this, we, we know, we checked and there were no rats there. And by the time it gets to you, they've got a story that has no explanation. And it doesn't mean that's what happened. It means there's a narrative that's been shaped by social forces. And one of them is that like, my reputation is on the line here. And I don't want to look an idiot if you come up with an explanation. So to, to me, there's no point in challenging that. If I'm trying to be polite on some of the very rare occasions I'm trying to be polite, I will flip to, oh, my goodness, how did that make you feel? Because normally the feelings, the emotions are quite genuine. And that's where you can have at least a genuine conversation, because otherwise it's going to get quite confrontational quite quickly. So I tend not to try and change people's minds in that instance. Um, and I tend to flip to, oh, my goodness, how did that that, that make you feel? Um, but it does bring us on to a topic I know we want to talk about, Chris, which was eyewitness testimony. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, because I mean, yeah, we're both very well aware of the vast psychological literature on the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. Um, and one of the kind of interesting twists in that, so I mean, there's literally thousands, probably tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of studies on that by now. Um, but the very first systematic study of the unreliability of eyewitness testimony took place in the context of a faked seance back in the Victorian era. 
Um, and this was a guy uh, called S.J. Davey, who had been along to various seances and was initially convinced that it really all was supernatural, but then got wind of the fact that actually it was all being done by trickery. Uh, so he practiced the techniques himself, and he put on a, uh, a seance, all the effects completely faked, just the way that Richard does it. Um, but what was interesting was that he got everybody to write down an account afterwards in as much detail and as accurately as they could of what had taken place in the seance room. And the results were kind of fairly devastating, really, because they showed that people misremembered the sequence of events, misremembered what had happened, which objects had been touched, who was present at the time, what was going on, and so on, in such a way that if you accepted the account at face value, you may well have been stumped for a non-paranormal explanation. But unfortunately, the account given was not how it actually happened. Um, I mean, again, and Richard's looked at similar effects in his work with the, with the fake seances. Uh, we've, we've both done work that looks at the kind of uh, effects, that, uh, the, the power of suggestion in those kind of contexts. So uh, typically, you know, again, following on from some of Richard's stuff, uh, if, if the person playing the role of the, of the medium says that a candlestick's moving, then afterwards you'll find that people who believe in the paranormal are more likely to report the candlestick moved, even in fact it didn't, um, and so on and so forth. So uh, it can often be the case, and this is why the purely anecdotal evidence will probably never be enough just to convince me, no matter how sincerely given no matter how honestly the person believes it because we know that people make mistakes we know that memory is can be faulty so yeah. it, it will always be the case and that might put us into a bind i mean uh, you know i mean david marks has recently been writing on this i've not read the entire book yet but he's actually uh, arguing that paranormal phenomena will never be demonstrated in the lab but maybe they really do occur in kind of real-life spontaneous situations. If that is the case, then science will always have to remain silent on it, I guess. I don't know. What do you think, Richard? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a bit like the trickster theory, isn't it? That, that, that it's size like a sort of trickster character and that it will never be trapped um, by in, in circumstances where it proves its own existence. Um, and in fact, you wanted, I mean, I noticed one of the questions was what uh, any researchers that have passed over to the dark side. And, and we're talking about David Marks, um, not that David's done that, but, but that, that sort of idea of, of becoming more believerish. Um, so two things to add about eyewitness testimony. One is that, um, Another early study uh, was Tony Cornell from the, the Cambridge Ghost Society, uh, Ghost Club. And uh, Tony, who I knew very well, was, was, was a great person. Uh, he was a believer. And at one point, though, he did do an eyewitness testimony study where he ran around Cambridge dressed as a ghost. And not many people noticed him. And then he ran across, um, he went to a, a cinema and ran across where a trailer was on. He ran across the stage dressed as a ghost. And again, nobody noticed him. So it's a weird study. Uh, it's very early in, well, into what's called inattentional blindness, which is when we're focusing on one thing, we don't notice something else, even though subsequently uh, it's quite obvious. And, and the magicians use that and, and fake seance do. Um, on the suggestion front, uh, we use this actually quite a lot in the seance. So this is a, a bell um, here. Uh, and what we do is, uh, if you just sort of even just make a suggestion to people uh, that uh, in their mind's eye, they're to imagine uh, the bell ringing and it's actually making a, a sound and moving at the same time. Some people, if you're highly suggestible, will actually uh, experience that. 
There we go. Uh, so uh, the quick sort of suggestibility test uh, for folks there. Chris, do you have a question? Uh, I do have a question, Richard. Are there any really interesting studies that you've come across quite recently about the relationship between inattentional blindness and paranormal belief? Because I no. sent a paper on that quite recently, and yeah. you've not read it yet. I saw it come in. I, I actually deleted it. Um, so, yeah. No, I did read it. I read it. Yeah. It was by, uh, by yourself and Anne. Uh, it, it's, and, uh, and it's fascinating, fascinating. Uh, it basically, it was looking at uh, belief in the paranormal, intentional blindness and working memory and uh, showed that paranormal believers tended to fall more for or, or attend less uh, to obvious stimuli. So oh, yeah. I thought it was an excellent paper. I thought it was one of your finest papers. Um, and it, it only increased the respect I have for you. And for Anne. Yeah, I mean, no, I can't go any higher. That's a maximum. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what do, I mean, how that seriously, how that might relate is that I mean, I'm sure both Richard and I uh, get kind of sometimes people saying, "Well, let me tell you what happened to me," and then they will give you their paranormal story. And not always, but sometimes there may have been a very mundane explanation for what happened. You know, maybe there was someone in that room with them who moved the book. Oh, no, no, no. No, I'd have seen them. I'd have seen them. Well, you know, as Richard and I know, and as my wife Anne Richards, who does intentional blindness research, knows, um, often, you know, I mean, the classic demonstration of this is the gorilla experiment. I'll say nothing more if you, have, if you haven't already come across it. Uh, of course, too much, really, you? I probably already have in many ways. <laughs> yes. Everybody knows that stuff now, Richard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, people don't notice things that you are sure would grab your attention and you just don't see them even when your eyes are looking directly at them. And as Richard says, um, in magicians and conjurers, uh, they, 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 they exploit these kinds of effects because they know that even if they're doing something directly where you're looking, if they can manipulate your attention properly, you won't take that information in and you just won't register it. So, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking, and there, there's some great questions. I wonder if we should sort of whip through some of these quite quickly because some of them are so great. Um, anonymous again. Uh, why are there never any ghost cows? Uh, it sounds like the beginning of a joke. Most other species have been have been seen, but not cows, which is interesting. Right. I mean, it does sound like it should be a good punchline. If anyone can think of a good punchline of why there's no ghost cows. I think it's something to do with how similar the word ghost and goat is. I mean, you know, um, I mean, there is a question, are you afraid? Not afraid of ghosts, but are you afraid of goats? Right. I personally, I'm yeah. terrified of them. Um, are paranormal tours something that we should be concerned about when thinking about sceptical activism? Are they harmless fun? Or a giveaway drug to, or a gateway, sorry, a gateway drug to woo. Um, the very first time that I was contacted uh, on this topic, um, oh God, this is really embarrassing. Now, um, Edinburgh Skeptics, who's the guy? I've got, an, I've got a mental block on the name. Uh, uh, <laughs> Ashprop. Yeah, yeah, Ash. Ash Price. Yeah, Ash Price contacted me. Sorry, Ash. Um, uh, uh, this was before Edinburgh Skeptics had been set up, I think, if I recall correctly, uh, and said that he was thinking of setting up some ghost tours, but for skeptics. 
And what did I think of the idea? And obviously, I, I loved the idea. I think it eventually transmogrified into Edinburgh Skeptics in the Pub, which are one of the uh, most active and brilliant groups in the country. They put on the uh, Skeptics on the Fringe every year, apart pandemic. Yeah, well, even this year, I think they did something, didn't they, online? Yeah. Um, but they, 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 I think, you know, that was my <laughs> that was my small role in encouraging the formation of Edinburgh Skeptics in the Pub. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the standard ghost tours, again, it's an interesting one, I think, that most people who go on those things probably are just doing it for a bit of fun and don't really believe in it. But some people do. And it's the same with astrology. Most people who read their horoscopes don't really believe in them, but some people do. It's the same with people who watch Most Haunted. A lot of people watch it just purely for a giggle, but some people think it's serious. And, and that's a difficult one because I don't want to kind of you know, shut down things that people enjoy. On the other hand, there is that minority that take it all far too seriously. And I guess, I don't know, I don't know whether, should, should we be concerned about that, Richard? What do you think? No. I think, no. 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 <laughs> I, th- I think ghosts are psychologically, as well as this relates to one of the other questions there. Um, you know, I think ghosts are psychologically interesting. It's interesting have been recorded across time in so many different cultures. Um, I don't think it's, you know, a burning issue of the day because obviously there's quite a lot else going on in the world uh, and and scepticism can contribute to. Um, But I I do think it's interesting. And also in the same way as the person said, you know, about um, uh, ghost tours being the gateway drug uh, into woo. I think ghosts for many people are a way of getting into scepticism because it's it's kind of fun. We all love a good ghost story. It's 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 kind of great. Um, so the question, uh, well, it's not anonymous. Uh, I bet Richard was a fan of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Please confirm. Uh, I was. I was and remain uh, a huge fan. And in fact, I was lucky enough to film, um, was it was with Mysterious World. I think it was. Uh, we did a test of psychic detectives, um, which was one of my favorite things because um, I'm trying to think of the name of the skeptic now that set it up and it's gone from my mind. I will think of it in a moment. Um, but, oh, uh, so uh, it was where the police very kindly provided four objects that had been involved in murders. And the first, op- first three of them were the sorts of things you would expect. It was a bullet and it was a scarf and so on. And the psychic detective's job was to try and divine information about the, the murders. We got to the fourth object. And they pull back the cloth, and it's a stuffed Labrador. It is a full-size stuffed Labrador. And the TV people looked, and I looked, and apparently someone had been battered to death with a full-size stuffed Labrador. And they said, we can't, we just can't. It's, it's all just too kind of weird. And it was the only time when I were filming with Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World where the producer said, yes, yeah, just too weird, actually. Um, but uh, I, I, I did love the show. I think it's, it's great. Um, there's a question coming in there. Uh, I think it might have been from Rich, Steel Wolf. I've got to interrupt you. Sorry. Was this the study you did with Chris Robinson? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was. So the question you asked, by the way, was who was the skeptic who set the study up? Well, that was you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and you, that was you. No, it wasn't. Um, Psychic was Chris Robinson, and one of my one of my, the lines that sticks in my head 
you, you apparently, you, you, I don't even recall this, you appeared on an, an Esther show or something like that subsequently with Chris Robinson. Uh, and uh, no, Chris Robinson, that's right. Chris Robinson had been on saying, I've been investigated by scientists at the University of Hertfordshire and they don't know how I do it. And your comment in this talk was, now what we said was, we don't know why he does it, <laughs> which amused me. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, sorry, carry on. It helped run it, but it was set up by uh, another sceptic who's written about ESP and is no longer with us, and I can't remember his name, unfortunately. I'm um, embarrassed to say. Um, so there's a question there about James Randi, um, yep. who unfortunately uh, died earlier. Um, it was last week, wasn't it? Um, and uh, about the million-dollar challenge, and was that a useful way to go? I, I think it served its purpose, which was it was a kind of shorthand for saying, look, you know, the, these claims uh, fall apart when you investigate them because, you know, Randy could say, look, the money's there um, and, uh, you know, it's never been claimed, which was just a very quick way of him getting um, to that, that point. So I, I think it was it was worthwhile. And in fact, Chris and I were involved in um, one of the challenges, I, I think, one of, one of the applicants, I think, quite a few years ago. Yeah. No. Well, I, I did actually quite a few because what the the, the J ref uh, basically was to say that before you went for the formal one million dollar challenge, you had to pass a preliminary test carried out by somebody that Randy knew and trusted. So, so we ended up doing a few of those preliminary tests, and of course, they never passed those. So Randy didn't have to do anything. You know, um, yeah. one of the things, one of the. Um, points out of that is that lots of people lots of critics of randy kind of maintain that it was a fix you know that there, there was it, it was never go, there was no possibility of winning that money because the the, the the thing would be rigged and i think both you and i know from having collaborated with him in setting up those tests that that is just not true mm. he went to great lengths to make sure that the conditions were such that the claimant accepted it was a fair test. You know, and you and I do the same thing, even if it's not a Randy challenge. We get the claimants to sign something in advance saying this is a fair test of my claim. And then always afterwards when they fail the test, it's then that they decide it wasn't a fair test after all. And one other little rider on that, somebody uh, earlier in the week was tweeting uh, and asked if there was, was there any kind of similar uh, prizes available within the UK, and the answer to that is yes, there is. It's not a million dollars, but it, there is a, a ten thousand pound prize available from the Association for Skeptical Inquiry (ASKE). Is there a, is there, is there kind of uh, is it an acronym or an abbreviation? I can never remember. But anyway, uh, if you go to their website, if you've got psychic powers and you can prove it under controlled conditions. £10,000 awaits you, and I would only ask for 10% as an, an introduction fee for huh. telling you about it. Perfect. I'm not a, Richard, I'm not a greedy man. Uh, Randy's is very interesting. I knew him fairly well, and we worked together um, a little bit. And I think my, my best memory, and I wrote about this for Skeptic with Randy, I mean, Randy's a very well-respected magician. He, he really knew magic. He'd, he'd been involved in it pretty much all of his life. And so I went along uh, to the premiere of An Honest Liar, which is a documentary obviously about him, and I was involved in it. And we walk in, and there's two things. First of all, uh, Alice Cooper, uh, the, the documentary about Alice Cooper, was also being shown at the same film festival. So in the green room was, funnily enough, all the sceptics and all the people involved in Alice Cooper's documentary. It wasn't hard to glance at the crowd and work out which were which. 
But the weird thing is that uh, Randy, of course, had cut off Alice Cooper's head on a nightly basis when he toured with him. And so all the Alice Cooper people knew Randy. And there's this bizarre thing of all these people that spent their life in rock and roll going, Randy, oh, my goodness. And so anyway, to walk in and he goes over to the table, uh, drinks table. And I notice he prepares for a trick. He does something which is, means he's prepared to perform this trick. And I spotted him do it. So I think, oh, OK, he's going to do the trick in 20 minutes or whatever. Two hours goes by and he's still got this preparation on him. I know he has. And he hasn't done it. And what he was waiting for is someone to say, oh, Mr. Randy, can you show us a trick? And this woman said, can you show us a trick? And he went, oh, no, I, I don't want anybody to take Oh, go on. No, no, no. Oh, go on. All right, then. And then he does this amazing trick that has been set up for two hours in advance. And it blows everyone away because the only explanation is, well, you either sat there for two hours waiting to do that, which is crazy, or there's no explanation. So he really knew magic. He, and, and, and not skeptics don't realize how, how kind of embedded he was in the magic community. Yeah. I, mean, I remember doing a, a weekend course at the uh, – what's it, what's it, Davenport's, the magic shop yeah. near um, – yeah, and, 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 and Anne was quite into all this stuff. So we did a weekend course in kind of little back room. There were some fantastic, um, you know, magicians. I mean, one of them kind of went on the Penn and Teller Foolers thing and fooled them, you know, so really, right. really high quality stuff. Um, but, you know, because I'd heard this stuff, again, from the critics saying he's not even a really very good magician. And I, I didn't think it was true, but I didn't know. But sure enough, the posters they had in the wall in that room, one of them was Randy. So, yeah. you know, this is a man internationally respected as a magician, you know. So, uh, no, I had many conversations with him, always quietly in the wings. The wings are such special places. And. Um, that that uh, they're, they're sort of, wings are very interesting because they're kind of spaces of transition. So you have the craziness that's happening out on stage, very well lit, and you have normality, and then you have the wings, mm. and that's where most um, experienced performers are quite quiet, actually, quite quiet. And that's when you could have these little sort of chats, and that's where I, actually my memories mainly of Randy are there, just having these quiet chats about stuff, just waiting to go on. Um, because he wasn't on, you know, often he was just expected to be performing all the kind of time. And it, he was at his most interesting when he was off stage, actually, just quietly yeah. chatting to you about life. Uh, hey, sorry, I've got off. Question here. Now we're going off on one, aren't we? Um, uh, how do ghost encounters, this is anonymous again. Anonymous is brilliant. Fantastic yeah. questions. Amazing. How do ghost encounters differ in, say, China versus USA Nigeria versus India. Uh, does each culture have a generic ghost concept and everyone sees that? Um, the short answer to that is that it is really interesting if you look at this as a kind of, uh, you know, cross-cultural phenomenon. So you look at different countries, you look at different eras in history, you'll find that virtually every society does have beliefs about ghosts or spirits, but the details will differ. And so the kind of ancient Greek notion of what a ghost was is quite different from our modern notion of what a ghost is. Um, and, and, you know, similarly for lots of other comparisons. And, and, and the, the, the kind of message from that is that we're dealing with a cultural phenomenon. You know, if, if there is an objective afterlife, if, there is, if, if ghosts are real, then presumably they're a manifestation of some eternal afterlife which one assumes would probably be unchanging and therefore would all see the same thing, regardless of time and, and, and place. And we don't. 
we see what in, in general terms, we tend to see what the particular expectations of our particular culture would lead us to expect to experience. I mean, there's a lot of individual variation within that, as we've already talked about. You know, I mean, you know, typically people don't see full form apparitions. They get a sense of presence and so on and so forth. But but our general concepts differ from culture to culture. So we're dealing with a, a cultural phenomenon rather than something that's got any objective reality, I think. Chris, have you seen um, The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix? No, not yet, but I will. It's no. great. It's great. And I'm rather enjoying it. Um, it's it's very good at, at, at that's got uncanny uh, sort of experiences that, put, that will shiver down your spine. So um, if other folks have uh, seen it, put some comments or questions or something. But um, no, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. Ow, I shall check that out. Right, have you got one there, Richard? Well, Sorry? I say, have you got any, another good question there? Uh, uh, Hassan uh, Selim is asking, where is the Quirkology goat? And this is a quite obscure reference, but I love it, uh, to the Quirkology uh, YouTube channel I did for many years. And one of the two behind me, I don't know which one it is, because uh, I, I don't turn around because uh, it will reveal my bald spot, um, we, um, is, uh, Chris, why have you not lost your hair? Uh, I've known you, and you've had that amount of hair all the time. I lost my hair when I was like, Stephen. This is the one thing I've got over you, Richard. <laughs> you're more successful than me. You're funnier than me. You get you get more. You're more creative than me. I've oh. got more hair. So so yes, one of these two is the Quirkology goat. And if people don't know what that is, uh, basically I was filming uh, the Quirkology stuff, and we hadn't quite got enough footage. And I said, let's just film one of the goats and call it the Quirkology goat. So we filmed one of them and it became this thing that people uh, then put on T-shirts and all sorts of things. Uh, so that is, that is one of them. So thank you um, for that question. Uh, so what else uh, have we got here? Uh, um, Steel Wolf, good one here. Uh, what do you think the documentary movies known as Ghostbusters? Are you calling uh, Bill? Uh, we're shot off on screen there. Bill Murray, a liar. Um, are you a fan of Ghostbusters, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know about you. Well, um, the very first radio interview I ever did, which is back in the day, it'd be in the eighties, and it was Radio Leicester. And I, what music did they use to introduce me to come on? Ghostbusters. Yes. And earlier this evening, one of my daughters had decided we would have a Halloween quiz. And one round was all kind of Halloween-related music, and I didn't recognise the introduction. <laughs> so, yeah, but I do like the film. No, I do. I do like it. And I've never seen the, the remake. I don't know. I mean, people didn't really like that, did they? Well, I'm not seeing it. Uh, Are you a fan? Yeah, remake. I, I love the film, though. I love it. I think it's fantastic. A lovely kind of quality uh, to yeah. it. And, and I don't know whether that did kick off the whole idea of going into haunted places with equipment. I, I, I'm not quite certain where that, that kind of movement comes from. I mean, people have always been using like price and so on, have used like thermometers in, in seances and so on. But the idea of, of kind of, you know, local teams going on, I, I think it might trace back to that, that film in the way a, a lot of alien reduction experiences trace back to close encounters and so on. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think you can, you often can see these kind of certainly these kind of increases in activity. What what typically happens, 
and, and I'm now teaching my grandmother to suck eggs here, but what typically happens is these these beliefs will kind of bubble along, uh, you know, a sizable minority level at least, and then there'll be a, some big film that will increase interest for a while, and then it'll go back to where it was, you know. And some of the kind of things that resurface, you know, like belief in angels, as, as, as you know, it's now kind of multi-billion dollar industry, you know, where you'd have thought, really, you know? Um well, what will be next? You know, there might be another thing that comes along and surprises us. But um, there was a question there. I can't find it now. Basically asking is, uh, do people, uh, yeah, are self-reported alien encounters similar to self-reported ghost encounters made in the pre-sci-fi age? Um, I certainly think, I mean, again, we've talked about this a lot. And I don't want to say too much more about it, but sleep paralysis is a common factor in both of them. Um there is a difference, however, at least you know, in my view, that with respect to kind of a lot of ghost claims, they describe the actual sleep paralysis encounter itself as to, and in terms of you know, what they saw, what was happening, what they thought was going on. You tend to find with the alien abduction claims that there's a kind of two-stage process. It's not that the original experience involves aliens. The original experience involves waking up, feeling a sense of presence, not being able to move, maybe weird lights moving around the room, humming sounds, blah, 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 blah. It's then in the UFO literature, it says, if you've had one of those experiences, you've probably been abducted by aliens. They've wiped your memory for the rest of the experience. So now the challenge is recover that memory. And so you go off a hypnotic regression, and that's where the detailed story of being abducted by aliens comes in. I mean, I've, I've actually done kind of, you know, like radio interviews where uh, they've had me on and an abductee, and the abductee, they've asked about the experience, and they've described a classic sleep paralysis experience. And I said, well, where were the aliens? Oh, well, I... I don't remember the aliens because obviously they wiped my memory, you know, but they're convinced they have been abducted by aliens. And, and it wasn't. It was classic sleep paralysis. There's pesky so, uh, aliens. Yep. Um, well, I see one more question, I think. Okay. What's the best way to hone critical thinking? Could you recommend any books, areas of study or activities? Um, well, one thing I could recommend is Hocus Pocus, uh, the uh, magazine, uh, which is just out. Thank you, Anonymous, for that one. Um, but there's some great books out there, obviously my own paranormality. Um, but actually, you mentioned uh, David Marks and Psychology of the Psychic. I haven't read his new book, uh, but Psychology of the Psychic. My goodness, what a great book that is. Uh, Randy's Flim Flam, I would go with, obviously, going back a few years, but is great. Chris Wells, would you recommend from the skeptical literature? Yeah, that's the more recent stuff. Um, uh, David Robert Grimes' uh, The Irrational Ape is a really, really good book. Uh, so I hope you'll buy me a drink next time I see him. Um, what else have we had recently? There's a, there's a, I mean, I mean, there's a fantastic book going to be coming out in a year or two called The Science of Weird Shit. I mean, what a fantastic title. Uh, yes, that'll be mine. Okay, so... Put that on your reading list. Um, I'm trying to think. What about I mean, the conspiracy theory one that your your student did? What's that? What was that? A conspiracy theory. Um, yeah, Brotherton's book, The Suspicious Minds. That is an excellent book. And that's and again, you know, we're going off ghost a bit now, but 
Um, I was asked recently in an interview what I think are the kind of most important areas for skeptics and skepticism going forward. And I would say probably belief, the psychology of belief in conspiracy is one of those areas because it's become conspiracy theories have become so much part of the mainstream now for obvious reasons. And we really need to find ways to kind of counter that misinformation. I mean, it's uh, it's it's very, very dangerous time. Hopefully, very soon, we might have some good news on that front. Um, but let's not get too political. Anyway, um, Richard, do you have any kind of final thoughts for our viewers to take away oh, with them? First of all, thank, thank you for watching. Second, thank you for donating. That's, that's absolutely brilliant. There's an astonishing amount of money. Please keep those donations coming in. Um, third, in terms of my two comics, there's say issue one here, uh, quite rare. I'm going to send one uh, to Steel Wolf um, because uh, that, uh, very kindly. Oh, my goodness. Turn that off. Um, uh, very kindly posted so many questions and the other one the question's gone now uh, but whoever asked about the quackology goat uh, i can't find your name so i think it's been uh, taken off here but whoever asked about the quackology goat you'll get the second comic so if both of you can just email uh skeptics uh which is uh, skeptics.online at gmail.com email them uh, i'll get your address i'll send you a signed comic and uh and also thank you um first of all for the skeptics setting this up astonishing and uh for you chris lovely to see you thank you very much for uh taking the time and next time i see you it'll be face to face and i'll give you a big hug oh lovely i can't wait i can't wait thank you so much for your time richard uh entertaining as informative as ever and i hope to see you soon you take care okay see you soon bye-bye That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission.